This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Cheers to a great day and this ice-cold Corona. You know what would make this day even better? My grandma's carne asada. Throw in some music. We can watch the game. Or we could keep it simple. Corona, la vida más fina. Get your Corona at ordercorona.com. Relax responsibly. Corona extra beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Prepare yourself for the only talk radio show you'll want to turn up. Crank this thing. Sirius XM Pandora presents the place where your hard rock and metal voice can still be heard. You got your ass, baby. Unfiltered, uncensored, say whatever you want. Hit the record button. Anything can happen, you know. I know that ain't nobody out there came to be mellow tonight, now did you? I say, I say there ain't nobody. I say there ain't nobody not out there that even wants to be a little bit mellow now, is there? Anybody wants to get mellow, you can turn around and get the fuck out of here, all right? This is the Trunk Nation Podcast, Podcast. with host A. Trunk. What's up, everybody? It's Eddie Trunk, and welcome to another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. New every Thursday, anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple Podcast. Pandora, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever the platform may be, just search and you will find the Eddie Trunk Podcast. And please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. New ones hitting every Thursday. Interviews with your favorite rock and metal artists and all the interviews you hear originate on my Sirius XM radio show, Trunk Nation. Hope you join me for that Monday through Friday, live 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time on Sirius XM Channel 106, Talking Rock with you. I consider it sports talk for rock fans. That's kind of the format. Your calls, a lot of interviews. Of course, we replay it every night on 106, 10 to midnight Eastern. And you can listen anytime you want on the SiriusXM app. If you listen only to this podcast and you're in the U.S. or Canada where you can get SiriusXM, you're only getting a tiny fraction, like not even 10% of what I do on a daily, weekly basis on the radio. So please be sure to join me. And I certainly hope you do. Everybody else, thank you for listening to the podcast around the world. It is greatly appreciated. Follow me on social media at Eddie Trunk, Twitter, Instagram, fan page on Facebook, eddietrunk.com is the official online home. Uh, the day you're hearing this, post day, I'm doing a big special with Slash in Los Angeles. Uh, that'll be coming to Sirius XM soon. Maybe some of you joining us virtually for it as well. And then, of course, next week, I'm on the Monsters of Rock cruise, and I'll be broadcasting from that as well. So a lot of big stuff happening on the radio show. Hope you come on board each and every day and join me for it. A lot of appearances coming up as well. A lot of new things announced. It's all on the homepage of eddytrunk.com. So if you're coming to your area, please be sure to come by and say hello at the various events. Again, you'll find them listed right on the homepage of my website. Two interviews for you this week, so we're going to get right to it. We'll start off with Jeff Tate. Jeff is, of course, the original lead singer in Queensryche, currently out touring on his own. And Jeff really made some news in this interview you're about to hear when it aired live on my radio show, talking about the fact that Queensryche, the original lineup, was offered a tremendous amount of money to reunite, 
and two of the members passed. You'll get that story and a lot more with Jeff Tate, our first of two interviews this week. Second interview was with George Lynch, best known, of course, as the guitarist in Dokken, still doing some stuff with Dokken, and he also recently released his first ever all-instrumental solo record called Seamless. Jeff Tate first. Here's that conversation now. Jeff, how are you, man? Hey, I'm good, Eddie. How are you? Good. It's been too long. You know, I got to tell you a funny story. I, uh, when you were out on tour recently, I texted you a couple times because I wanted to say hello. And I said, you know, I haven't talked to Jeff in a while. Maybe he wants to come on and promote the tour dates. And after a couple texts, I didn't get a response. And then the response comes back and goes, I don't know who this Jeff guy is, but I've been getting a lot of texts for him from him. And this is not his number anymore. <laughs> so clearly yeah. I apologize to whoever I made a mistake and was texting, but uh, I guess you changed your number, Jeff. <laughs> yeah. I changed it a couple of years ago and um, <laughs> yeah, I've heard that from a number of people that have uh, told me that story. <laughs> I, th I yeah. thought they would have scrambled the numbers or something, you know, before they give it out again. But again, no, not. and I, I guess, yeah, I th was thinking that too, because I was like, well, it wasn't that long since I talked to Jeff. It's like, don't they retire numbers for at least a little longer before they reassign them? But somebody stuck with your number and probably getting a, a lot of calls and uh, people trying to hit them up to hear certain songs or whatever the case may be. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, huh? <laughs> are you on the, are you on the road now, Jeff? Or are you home? I am. I'm actually in uh, New York uh, for the show tomorrow night. Okay, where are you guys at tomorrow? Uh, I don't know, actually, the name of the place. <laughs> Some place uh, close to Broadway, I think. I'm not sure what the name of it is. All right, Sorry, well, we'll get the info. I, I haven't looked that far ahead. <laughs> it's Sony Hall. Oh, yeah, we got you here. Sony Hall. Yeah, you're in. Uh, that's a cool little room. It's downstairs there. I've been there, Sony Hall in, uh, in New York. I didn't realize you were in New York City. So you've been out for a while now, and you've been playing – Tell everybody what you're doing because you're doing uh you're you're celebrating anniversary of two classic Queensrÿche records, correct? Uh yeah, yeah. Well, I started uh, last year in 20 was it 2020 uh with the uh, the celebration of the 30-year anniversary of the Empire album playing that in its entirety. And uh that was just a few months going and uh back we played most of Europe and then we came to the United States and started i think we were like three or four weeks in and that's when COVID hit and started shutting everything down you know so we had to go on hiatus for a while and then um yeah we started up again now that the coasts are clear basically and uh, we're out playing the show and it's uh it's going great we're playing empire in its entirety and also uh rage for order which is kind of a treat personally because it's one of my favorite queens albums and i really enjoyed singing that album so Rage for Order is what, 35 years? Oh, gosh, I guess so. It's uh, 1986, I think it came out. So coming up on 37. Yeah. Did you decide to do Rage because of that anniversary as well, or just because it's one of your favorite records? No, it's just one of my favorites. Yeah, I never got a chance to uh, play a lot of the songs off that record uh, in my time with Queensryche, and I thought, well, you know, uh, life's pretty getting pretty short. It's on my bucket list of things to do. Why not? And uh, so, yeah, we've been doing it, and it's uh, it's really fun to play because both albums are very, very different, you know. And so uh, we start with Rage, and then we take 
you play that and it's uh it's really a kind of a dark uh kind of futuristic kind of mood with that album you know and then uh, we take a short break and we come back out and the whole thing is different with empire because that's that's very up and uh everybody knows the album you know so it's a uh, it's a good time people singing along you had mentioned that Rage for Order was one of your favorite Queensryche records to sing and uh, that you're fond of that record. Beyond the what you just mentioned about it being a little darker, what is it about that time in your history, that time in the band's history, or that material on that record that makes it one of your favorites? You know, I don't really know for certain. I, I think it was just a very eclectic uh, approach to making a record. We didn't have you know, uh, a lot of success, uh, previous to that. So we, we kind of didn't have, uh, you know, the imposed borders that come with success. We could kind of do anything we wanted to do. And, and therefore, you know, we, we really did, uh, we really pushed our own, you know, boundaries of writing and composition and, and instrumentation as well on that record. And I think that's probably what I enjoy about it. It's, it has a freedom about it. That's, uh, quite attractive. Did you guys, do you remember talk about that prior to making it or did it just happen organically when you started writing and recording? Yeah, it just all started happening. You know, you, you write about what you're interested in and, and then it comes out and uh, what happens next is people start asking you to explain what it is you did. <laughs> you know, and that's where it gets, gets uh, complicated is because you have to sort of put it into words what you're what you're trying to do you know and, and really uh it, it should be, really be taken at face value that's that's what it is you know you don't really need to explain it i guess yeah i mean there's a, obviously the opening track on that record walk in the shadows is a is a classic but there's a song on that record and i remember you guys did a video for it as well uh the song uh, gonna get close to you and that a lot of people might not know is a cover and it was done by a, a Canadian woman a couple of years prior to you guys recording it by the name of uh, Lisa Dalbello. How did that get on your radar? How did it come for that you guys ended up doing that song? Because a lot of people think it's just your song. They don't actually know that it, the, the woman who actually recorded it and wrote it actually had a fair amount of success with it in Canada. How did it get on Queensryche's radar to do for Rage for Order? We were friends, and uh, it's a really cool song. And we were one short song for the record, and uh, our, our management actually suggested, hey, why don't you do one of Lisa's songs? And so we started messing around with the song a little bit in the studio, and actually we recorded it in like a day. It was, uh, it was kind of like, here's the idea, let's see what it's all about, boom, recording it, and then done, you know? It was very spur of the moment, and uh turned out really nicely. I, I, I love that song. We kind of gave it a different feel than uh than her original version it gave it kind of our own spin you know yeah there's a there's a, a darkness and almost like an eeriness about it actually even the video and that's the other thing jeff about that period of time for rage for order uh people have the record and know visually you guys had an interesting look going on at that time didn't you yeah we pretty much copied ozzy osbourne's look <laughs> Where where did the idea come from for that? Well, he looked really cool. His whole band looked great. We were touring with him, and, you know, <laughs> it just kind of happened. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I forgot that you guys were out. What, so what was that for Ozzy? That was Ultimate Sin? Uh, yeah, I think it was, yeah, Ultimate Sin. You know, every band that tours with Ozzy has crazy Ozzy stories. Uh, do you have any you could share? Uh, most of my, well, all, all the stories with Ozzy were drinking stories, drinking in the bar, actually. You know, he, at that time, apparently he was uh, quite a notorious drinker and uh, liked to be in the bar and he was comfortable there and that's where you could find him and and have a conversation with him if you desired, you know. He was pretty open about everything at that time and uh, easy to hang out with. I don't really have uh, tales of debauchery other than, you know, uh, drinking too much and falling down and, you know, waking up the <laughs> next day and having to do the show. And But, you know, when you're in your 20s, you can do that. It's uh, It's easy. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. You know, and then you mentioned the other album that you're doing on this tour is is Empire. And, of course, the, the table was set nicely for the success of Empire because Operation Mindcrime was a big breakthrough record for you previous to that. When you guys started working on, on Empire and that album coming together, did, what, did you feel a pressure? Was there a pressure within yourself and the band at that time to, to build, which you certainly did, build on the success of Mindcrime? Um, not really. No, I didn't at least. Uh, it was, um, it was just kind of another record, you know, it was a, it was an idea. And, um, I struck out on the idea to, uh, you know, make it happen. And, um, it always sort of, uh, the, the way I work at least is, you know, you, you start running with your ideas and before you know it, you, you got a record, you know, and then, then it's up to, uh, who you've got working for you and how they promote it and how they sell it, you know, and we were very fortunate at that time to have EMI records, which was a big powerhouse, you know, record company at the time. And they really sunk a lot of money into uh, the promotion of it, you know, which, you know, really, really uh, made a huge difference comparatively to uh, previous records that we'd done where there wasn't as much money spent on the promotion, you know, yeah, and of course, when you talk about Empire, I mean, by far the biggest song Queensryche has in the catalog in terms of just mass awareness is on that record in Silent Lucidity. And I, was, I always wondered when that song came in being the, I mean, Queensryche was always, there's a lot of diversity within the music, but when you heard and put that song together, and I believe Chris DeGarmo wrote it, was that something where you were, was there any hesitation in doing something that was that structured like that, that much of a ballad, that that tone, that sort of uh, approach to, to doing a song? Was there any reservation? No, not reservation. It was a, a song that uh, was quite beautiful on its own. And, and you have to remember when uh, we chose to put it on the record, it was just acoustic guitar and vocal at <laughs> the time. It didn't have anything else. Uh, but I really liked the melody quite a bit that Chris came up with and, and the, the words he wrote were quite beautiful. And uh, we had a good place to start from, you know, uh, building on the song. And, uh, and that's what we did. You know, we, we invited Michael Kamen who had worked with us on the warning album and on operation mind crime to uh, write and compose some orchestra parts, you know, for lucidity and which he did. And uh, we got those parts from him just in the last 
couple of days of mixing the record. So the song was really on its own. Uh, it had, by that time it had bass and drums to it and all the vocals completed, but we didn't have all that beautiful orchestration yet. And so we were just envisioning that Michael was going to come up with something, you know, amazing, which he did. But, uh, I always remember when, the, when the, uh, when the FedEx came <laughs> to the studio with the tapes in it from London, we anxiously put them on the machine and, and lined them up to our, our machine and played it all down. And we were crying. It was so beautiful. It was just, uh, it was better than what uh, Chris or I had imagined. And Peter Collins, our producer at the time was jumping up and down because he's, he wasn't a believer in the song the way it was, you know, but with the orchestration, it really pushed the song over the top and became, uh, it became something quite a bit different. And, uh, it, it really, uh, like you said, it really resonated with a lot of people and still does. Uh, when I play it live, it's a song that, you know, really, really affects people. And I've heard thousands and thousands of stories, personal stories from people who have been affected by the song and have, had that song in their lives and have passed that song on to their children. And, uh, it's, a it's a wonderful, um, it's a wonderful situation and I'm very fortunate. And I feel grateful to be part of that. You know, it's interesting cause I'll talk to artists who have these songs that are the s- signature iconic songs in their catalog. And many of them will tell me, that when they were writing it or recording it to them, it was just another song on the record. They didn't think that it was anything different or that was going to become that song for them in their life. It Mm -hmm. sounds like from what you're telling me when that song, you guys started working on that song that from, from the get go, even when it was just acoustic with your voice on it, that there, you felt like it was something special that like, right. It felt, it felt, correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like that's what you're saying. Uh, No, I don't think it was that. Uh, it's, it's just that it wasn't complete, you know, right. and uh, the way I work and, we, and the way Chris worked was that we would always take a song to its ending, you know, we would finish the song out. And uh, that's one that we were just waiting to finish. And it just took longer than we had anticipated. We thought we'd have it finished by the time we went in, you know, to mix, but we had to wait till the last couple of days before we were done. It was like, it was probably, I think it was actually the last song mixed for the record. Jeff, I'm curious, you know, when I talk about this stuff and you know, I go back with you guys pretty much since, since the beginning and and a huge long history here and the band's got a huge long history. And when we talk about these records, 30, 35 years on, and now you're out there playing two of them in their entirety, does, does it make you nostalgic at all? Does it make you kind of, uh, you know, nostalgic for the old days? the old days yeah i mean when you created it (laughs) you know does it make you miss i love the i love being i love being in in the now yeah i was actually walking around new york uh today uh gathering up some uh some supplies and walking down some of the streets and getting a little nostalgic about you know some of the restaurants i used to love to go to and the, the taverns and the cocktail lounges and a lot of places that aren't there anymore you know, because mm. uh, the city keeps growing and every place is like that. You know, if you're long, around long enough, um, you know, whole city blocks get taken out and rebuilt and all your memories that were attached to that location are now, 
you know, altered. They're, they're only in your head now, you know? So, uh, it's crazy. Like I was up in Montreal a couple of years ago and went to, uh, the bar that I used to frequent on St. Denis, uh, street, uh, place called the uh, Saints of Peace. which is where I wrote the mind crime story. And, um, and now it's a, a it's a sports bar. <laughs> it's a whole different vibe, right? It's not even called the Saints of Peace anymore. It's a it's a whole different thing. I mean, the the building is still there at least, you know. So I have a little bit of attachment to it. But I, I like living in the now and, and being in in this time period, you know. Yeah, you know, I guess where I'm going is, I, and I thought about this a lot lately because I know that Chris DeGarmo's popped up on. Uh, doing some stuff here and there whenever Jerry Cantrell or the Allison Chains guys do some stuff. And I know he's not really active in music anymore, but I know it seems like he'll do things here and there with Jerry. I know the Mopop thing that, that Chris performed at. And then, you know, I just think back at uh, the, the place Queensryche holds is such a special place in so many rock fans hearts and where you come, the, the original band and where you come from I often wonder, my mind wanders, if it could have been held together. Because if you think about it, things are so fragmented now. You're out there doing this. Queensryche, as we know them, is two guys left. We don't know what's going on with Scott Rockenfield. Nobody seems to know. We know Chris is kind of on the fringes and not really in music. So as fans, I think our mind wanders and we say, man, what could have been if they could have held it together? Do you ever think like that, or is that just us as fans? Yeah, I think that's pretty much um, a, a fan thought. Uh, we did hold it together for years and years and years. And uh, it it was a, a really, really tightly run ship. And it was uh, very lucrative. And we had a lot of great records uh, and did a lot of world touring, made a lot of friends and uh, played a lot of music together, you know, and, and we had our time. And uh, I'll always be grateful for that time that we had. Uh, it's like walking around New York, you know, it, it's, that was a time. And uh, it, it doesn't mean that that time has to go on forever. Uh, there's new times to be had, you know, and there's, uh, there's more music to be made. There's more songs to be sung and, and more audiences to play music for. But you and I both know, as long as the original five of you, thankfully, are still alive, there's always that interest level. Do, is there any interest level from you, and do you see any scenario where the five of you could ever come together, even for a benefit of any sort? Do, do you? Is there any side of you that would welcome that or is hopeful for that? Uh, hmm. Honestly, not really expecting that to happen, basically because we've been offered – um, just obscene amounts of money to get back together and do one tour, one tour. And we'd never have to tour again. And, uh, you know, a couple people, the band turned it down, you know, they, they're not interested in doing it. And so that would really be, I think the only motivation that would get everybody together was an obscene amount of money, but that didn't work. So <laughs> you know, there's really no, no hope for it after that, I think. Well, you're being incredibly honest there because, I mean, so many times when people talk about reunions, it's always like, well, if the wind blew the right way, and, the, and we all know at the end of the day, if the number came in and it made sense that some people would jump at that, it's sounding like you were open to it then, but others were not and kind of squashed it at that number. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I'd say that. And that, you know, um, and, and there you go. It's uh, money is not the motivator, you know, and uh, getting together for an artistic dream isn't a motivator either. So what do you have? You have nothing. So, you know, it's uh, obviously both camps are, are happy in the position they're at. And I know for myself, I, I, uh, I love my life. <laughs> I love what I'm doing and I love traveling and playing music for people. And uh, so far I'm, I'm still kicking it at 63, still happy and, and healthy, you know? Speaking of that vocally, how, how is it for you to tackle this stuff now? Is it more difficult? Is it more challenging than I imagine when you were younger? I hear that from most singers. It gets a little harder. Everybody I talk to, Jeff, and I'm not just saying this because you're on the air with me, but everybody you called in that saw these shows raved about the shows and your vocal performance. So obviously you're still nailing it, but how do you feel at 63 uh, re- singing stuff that you originally recorded in your 30s? <laughs> and twenties, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a challenge. Definitely a challenge. I think a lot of singers, uh, if if we would have thought about it a little more when we were in our twenties, there's probably some things we wouldn't have done. You know, <laughs> paint yourself into uh, a corner. <laughs> yeah, and and not just you know talking about uh, making the music and choices you make musically, but also your lifestyle. You know how you live your life and. Uh, you know, being on the road and, and this kind of lifestyle, it's, it's about entertaining and you, you're, you know, you're entertaining people before the show, after the show, during the show. So you have to learn how to pace yourself somewhat, you know, and I have to say it at 63, um, after the show, I'm ready for bed. <laughs> <laughs> I give well, it all well, away on the stage, my friend. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. You know, and I, I've, in all the years I've known you, I've never known the answer to this question because when I've talked to great singers, I always find it eternally fascinating because I'll talk to guys that will tell me or women that will tell me that they have this massive ritual before they sing and there's a cool warm up and a warm down and they won't speak on show days. And then, of course, our mutual friend, the late, great Ronnie James Dio, I'll never forget sitting with him in his dressing room before he went out to sing with Sabbath one night. And I said, Ronnie, let me get out, get out of here, let you warm up. He goes, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, he just walked out on stage and sang and did absolutely nothing. What's, what's the Jeff Tate rule on that? Is there a big uh, warm-up thing, or do you just go for it? I'm more, I'm more of the uh, Ronnie James Dio camp. I, uh, I start my warm-up when I get up in the morning, just warming up, singing lightly to myself. And then I, I really have my warm-up at a sound check. And, and I always almost always nine days out of 10 days, I'll have a sound check. I like sound check. I like making sure it's all set up and everything's working right. And I can, I can sing well. And that's where I, I get all my warm up going. And then, uh, and then I don't worry about it, you know, after that. And uh, I usually have like a couple drinks before the show just to kind of unwind and relax the band. And I'll sit around, tell stories and, have a couple of drinks and then we go out and do the show, you know. You mentioned Operation Mindcrime a few minutes ago. That there was some talk, and some people in my audience actually asked me to ask you about this. That apparently at one point there was some talk about you actually doing a theater production or that turning into a theater presentation of some sort. Is that something you still want to do? Is there any movement on that? 
oh gosh, there's been movement and then non-movement and more movement and then non-movement. It's a, uh, at first I was kind of frustrated about it because it, it's been shopped around as a movie uh, several times, I've had conversation with directors, uh, producers over the years. Um, some people on Broadway have been interested twice. Uh, and then it always comes down to, you know, the funding, you know, and uh, it's expensive to do those kind of things. And um, I think the last time that it came up and we, we tend to sell these options on the idea, you know, because people come to us and they say, look, we want to do the movie and we're willing to do it. And say, okay, well, if you're going to, if you're going to do it, you know, we'll give you the rights to make a movie for six months. And then after that, you can't, you know, it's done. You, you had your shot and it always falls through, you know, at least it has so far. I think it's still possible in the future. Um, it's just hasn't happened yet. You know, mm. Uh, everybody, you can see Jeff Tate performing on tour right now. The tour plays tomorrow in New York City, Sony Hall. And then you've got dates that continue. I'm scrolling through uh, Albany, Massachusetts. You can find all the dates wherever you're listening at jefftate.com. Jeff, uh, what about new music? Have you thought about a new record? Do you want to do a new record? Where, where are things at with that? Well, um, I started doing these uh kind of interesting records with um, people at Frontier Records in Italy uh, called Sweet Oblivion. And I've done two of them now. And uh, I've heard them. They're real good. I've heard them. Yeah. Yeah. They're kind of fun, fun projects to do because I get to work with different people and uh, collaborate, you know, writing and and performing with different people. That's quite fun for me. So I'm slated to do another one of those this year. And then I just finished, tracks on the new Aventasia album with mm-hmm. uh, Tobias Samet and his crew of people. And other than that, I don't really have anything else in the works that's new. You know, I'm pretty much focusing on, on touring over the next year and a half. I'm, I'm going to some new places that I haven't been before, like Peru, which I've never been looking forward to that. And my wife and I started this new uh, travel business a couple of years ago called Backstage Best Travel where we take people around with us while we tour and we take them to all of our favorite places that we go. It's a week long trip. And we, we take them to Tuscany and Ireland, Scotland, uh, Montana, the Pacific Northwest, uh, Rio de Janeiro, uh, Rome, uh, these kind of places. And so we've been doing that and having a lot of fun with that. It's been uh, really, really uh, interesting. So it's it's basically you can book a trip with Jeff and Susan Tate and you guys are the tour guides pretty much? Pretty much, yeah. We, we take you everywhere we like and uh, places that we've discovered. And it's, uh, for the first time traveler, it's, it's really quite fun because you don't have anything to worry about. You just show up and we got the, we got the ball from there and we take you everywhere and show you all the cool things we've discovered over, you know, 30 years of traveling around the world. And uh, people love it and it, they keep coming back for more and more trips. <laughs> well, that's pretty cool. Can people sign up for those and keep up with those on your site, or is it a separate separate yeah. place to go? Yeah, I think there's a, a button you can push on jefftate.com. It'll take you there. And also it, the, the website is called uh, backstagepasttravel.com. And how about, I remember, and I have a bottle of this too, and I had, I had more than one bottle at one point. It was quite good. Are you still doing your line of wine? Was it Insania? 
Did I have their name right? It's called Insania. Mm -hmm. Insania. Yeah. Yep. And how's that going for you? And uh, it's going great. Yeah. Every for every vintage, you know, it's a challenge because you're dealing with uh, farming, you know, and the weather and growing grapes. And this last year was a a really challenging year because of the rain. We had a lot of rain, and uh, the the winery is in uh, Alsace which is right on the border of France and Germany and Switzerland. And they had like record setting rains this last year. So it was a tough year for our vintage, but yeah, we imported into the States and uh, we should be getting the, the first uh, import in, in the next few weeks, actually. Awesome. Awesome. And then two quick things and I'll let you run, Jeff. We, I mentioned Dio earlier. I know, you know, we all miss him and we were all very fond of him. I remember when, Ronnie played that party for me in New York City, and I remember you came, and we had a great time that night, and I have so many memories with Ronnie. Um, I I was listening the other day to Stars, the hearing aid recording, and I, I was going mm-hmm. through all the people that were on that. And, of course, you were part of that, and you sang on that. And so many, uh, so many rock fans now are fascinated by the hearing aid thing and listening to it and seeing the video and all those different personalities in that room. Anything you remember about recording that and that day? <laughs> yeah i was uh i was scared to death yeah completely overwhelmed by it all and um i i wasn't until well i, I talked to ronnie on the phone and he invited me down for it and i i yeah ronnie wanted me to do it i said absolutely you know the guy was a mentor to me and it was a fantastic singer and great just a great all-around guy Anyway, I flew down to L.A., and when I showed up at the studio there, it was like a circus going on. I've never <laughs> seen so many people. And all these famous musicians, and, you know, I, I was new to the business at the time. We were just making our second or third record, I think. And um, I, I was so <laughs> afraid when I walked in the studio. Uh, I met up with Ronnie, and... Uh, and uh, he uh, he brought me in the studio right away and tried to make me feel comfortable, you know, and showed me where the mic microphone was and got me all set up with, you know, tea and water and everything and uh, the lyrics sheet and everything. He goes, okay, so we're just going to run through it a few times and you just, just sing it, you know, the way you do. And and uh, I'm just going to be on the other side of the glass. So, so I look on the other side of the glass and there's all these, like, famous, famous musicians in the control room listening, you know, there's like Neil Sean is in there and, and uh, Ted Nugent and um, Halford is in there. And uh, the place was packed full of these different musicians, you know, watching the session and listening to it. And I was just shaking. (laughs) So so intimidated. I just sat there with my sunglasses on the whole time. I couldn't take them off. I just had to like shut myself off and get into the music without, you know, looking through the window to see who was listening, you know, but, uh, well, yeah, you're, you're a I'm new really kid happy. at the time and there's Dio producing you on top of it all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Ronnie was, he's very easy to hang out with, you know, no matter. I was right. very used to him. And years later I had the chance to produce him and, and work with him in the studio when he sang on the uh, Operation Mindcrime 2 album. Right. And that was really a, a payback <laughs> for me because I had to do like, all 22 takes you know (laughs) (laughs) not because i needed them just that we were undecided because he kept giving us take after take after take that was 
incredible. You know, this is like how many takes of greatness do you need? You know? Right. Yeah, but he was fantastic to work with. Yeah, yeah. And finally, I'll be seeing you in a couple of weeks. You are a, a late addition onto the Monsters of Rock cruise. Are you looking forward to that? I am. Yeah, I love those cruises. This would be my first uh, Monsters of Rock. I typically do the Shiprock one. So this is the first Monsters I'll do, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I and like that will kind you of environment where you're just floating at sea and you know <laughs> everybody's partying and you know listening to music and you get to see all the different bands perform a lot of a lot of times as a musician you don't get to see other acts play you know because right. you're always touring so this is a real treat and on the cruise will you be doing the same thing you're doing on the road now or are you going to do rage for order and empire or are you yep. going to do a, a different set yep i'm doing um Rage Order and Empire in its entirety, yeah. And most acts play twice over the course of the cruise. Is that the plan for you as well? Uh, yeah, I think it is, yeah. All right, cool. Well, I look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks, and uh, I'll be doing the radio show on board for a couple of the days as well. So if it works out, come by and say hello again. Always love to have you. It's been too long since we talked, and I'm glad we had a chance to catch up. Yeah, thanks for having me on your show. I appreciate it. You got it. Everybody check out uh, jefftate.com. See if a date is coming near you as Jeff continues to tour throughout North America. And the dates are all listed there, including the next show, which is in New York City tomorrow. Uh, send my best to your wife, Jeff, and I'll see you in a couple weeks as well. And, uh, and we'll uh, we'll see you on the ship. Okay, Eddie. Take care, man. Bye-bye now. See you, man. Bye-bye. Thanks to Jeff Tate. Great to visit with him. Next up, it's George Lynch. This episode is brought to you by AARP. 18 years from tonight, Grant Gill will become a comedy legend when he totally kills it at his improv class's graduation performance. Knees will be slapped. Hilarity will ensue. That's why he's already keeping himself in shape and razor sharp today with wellness tips and tools from AARP to help make sure his health lives as long as he does. Because the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org healthyliving. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Save big money on everything for your spring projects at Menards. We have all of your garden and landscaping essentials. Master Garden Premium Garden Soil contains a slow-release fertilizer that feeds gardens for up to nine months. It produces better results and is ready to use for all your gardening needs. Save big on Menards' great selection of garden and landscaping products. Compare brands in-store or online at Menards.com. Save big money at When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
George Lynch, the original guitarist in the band Dokken, still doing some work with Dokken. He called into my radio show Trunk Nation about a week ago, give an update on his first ever instrumental record and some future plans, and talk about some cool stories from the past as well. Here is virtuoso guitarist George Lynch. Hey, George, how are you, man? Hey, Eddie. I'm good. Thanks for the time. Thank Thanks for the time. Uh, posting that. I want to thank you for posting that too. That was was pretty awesome. And uh, so I was going through all the responses, you know, uh, and comments. And the number one thing, it was actually really educational for me because I didn't realize that I turned my back to the audience a lot while I'm on stage. And after watching that video and reading all the comments, I realized I got to stop doing that. <laughs> oh, you mean when I shot at the when I shot the video the photo when you well you guys had me out to shoot that photo and then the video I took of you guys playing at Rock Island. Um yeah, you well when I saw you at that Dallas guitar show, you had done that too and a, a few people had commented about it. And I remember asking you about it and you said that's just you kind of getting into a zone and grooving with the drummer and you don't realize you're actually doing it. Is that what it is? Yeah, it it absolutely is. There's 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 I call sweet spots. There's places on particular stages, and you when you, you when you're getting acclimated when you walk out there, um, that tend to be a, a place where you can hear everything better. You know, so I want to hear a nice. As a musician, when I go on stage, ultimately, I think most of us feel this way. We, we don't want to just hear ourselves. And I'm standing in front of a, a roaring stack of, of of amplifiers. I really just don't want to hear that. I want to hear it like the audience hears it. I want to hear it like a record. I want to hear a nice mix of bass and drums supporting the guitar and the vocals in there. So we know all know where we're at. And we're playing together as a band. That's really important to me to feel the groove and, and sense of where we're going and so forth. So um, my favorite spot is literally to be anywhere, but in front of my rig. And uh, that's why sometimes I'll put, uh, I'll turn my cabinets back around or I'll do what Bonamassa does. I'll put plexiglass in front or I'll even put packing blankets <laughs> or anything just to kind of, dim it down a little bit so that I can hear the rest of the band. And if I can't do that, uh, for instance, when I walk out on stage and I do the, do, and do, uh, do the, uh, docking, uh, uh, performance things, the guesting things that I've been doing, uh, I'm, you know, I'm just kind of walking out there cold. So what I'll do is I'll sort of find that spot where it's, which is friendly to me. Um, cause I'm not singing, so I don't have to worry about being on a mic. And, um, yeah, it is, it, it, I don't, I make that my priority, not a performer, which is probably wrong because that's the whole point I'm there is to be seen and people want to see me play and whatever, you know, and, and be, uh, you know, having some back and forth with the audience, which I try to do too, but I don't do as much as I should. And at this late stage in the game of my career, after watching your video, I really hit home about how bad I am with that and, and <laughs> reading the comments, you know, and then, and, uh, but, in my defense, I will say that I think a little bit of it had to do with the fact that I was hamming it up for you because you were filming me, and you know that's how I am. <laughs> well, the thing—one thing I was going to ask you, but the thing I was going to—not to overthink this—but here's the other thing I was thinking: like, so in the docking stuff that you're doing now, you're coming out at the end, you're playing three, four, or five songs, whatever. You're not out there the whole time. When I saw you play at the Dallas guitar thing a year ago and, and you were sort of more grooving with the drummer, you had just come out and done a few songs and it was a guitar clinic sort of thing. I would imagine you weren't always like that because when you were a full-time member of Dokken or whatever band you're performing with as a full-time member, you would have that all dialed in in your monitors for sound check, right? Right, right, 
So this is really more a byproduct of jumping out into like being a part of things instead of being part of it from the beginning where you would have that all set up, I would think. You know, the other thing, well, you're partly right. And here's the thing. I mean, I pay, I place a lot more weight on my playing and my, you know, my, my tone rather than going out there and doing somersaults and, you know, backflips and being a performer. I mean, I used to put a lot more weight on the performance than the playing. And in, in over the decades, I've, you know, after listening to board tapes and watching videos and things like that and, be, and, and watching them critically, I'm like, you know, that may look good, but it does not sound good. And I'm a guitar player, first and foremost, I like to think. So that's what I got to focus on and not out there doing windmills. And, um, and that might have been the wrong choice, actually, because I think I got a lot further <laughs> just pretending I knew what I was doing rather than really know what I was doing. But back in the 80s, I mean, yeah, I mean, we would be we would be uh, very uh, serious about our posing, you know, and what we were wearing and how we were looking. And um, and, uh, you know, I get that, you know, you hit a note and you telegraph it and it it really amplifies it and it, it means a lot. I think you can get a, I think that makes a lot more sense when you're twenties, your thirties and your forties, but when you're in your sixties going on your seventies, <laughs> I don't know if all that works as well. You know, it's not, it seems a little uh, disingenuous. Well, you know, George, that's, this is a super obvious question, but I actually don't know the answer to this. And I've known you for a very long time. I've been a fan for a very long time. And you referenced how long you've been doing this as a professional musician. But who was your guy when you first picked up a guitar that inspired you to do so? Because that influence can be from a playing standpoint, but also a performance standpoint. I mean, there's many guys like Ingve told me seeing Hendrix set the guitar on fire made him want to be a performer. So what, what, when you were a kid, who were your guys? Like, who did you see or hear that made you want to both perform um, and play? Hey, Eddie, I'm, I'm getting every other word. Even that. So, uh, but I think what you're asking me is, is there an inspirational point? watching somebody you know like uh yes perform that really you know lit my fire and uh yes if, if that's what i was if that's what i was hearing um there has been a, a lot of those moments in my life um peppered throughout my you know my my guitar playing years from when i was just a little kid to now uh and they continue to happen but i think one of the most seminal moments was when i saw zz top tris ombre's tour i believe that was 73 ish um just blew my fucking mind out of the water. I mean, that lasted with me my whole life. I mean, I was like, okay, that's what, that's what's possible. It was so powerful. It was like seeing Zeppelin for the first time or, or Deep Purple or Sabbath, you know, it was just this monolithic, you know, thing that just permeates your whole being. It was just it was a spiritual experience, really. I, I was just, I'd never seen anything or felt anything like that before. And I, was, and I thought, okay, that is a whole other dimension. And that's where I need, that's what I need to achieve. And, um, you know, and we end up following the footsteps of these guys and, uh, you know, the, 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 the guys that we grew up with and worshiped and we're kind of, we become them, but less than them. You know? And I think that's the way it's supposed to be. Have you ever had a conversation with Bill? Have you ever had a conversation with Billy Gibbons about that? Yes, but uh, Billy came to my house uh, many years ago, 
with a friend photographer, and we took a trip out to an amp company out in the desert here in Southern California, Mojave Amps. And it, we spent the whole day together. It snowed in the desert that day. We had beers. We had Mexican food. We told mostly he told stories, which were awesome. And, you know, tried some equipment, played together. It was just a great day. And, uh, of course, you know, I've met, you know, talked to him many other times, but, and I invariably bring that up, but he doesn't care. And, 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 you know, it's just, it only means something to me. It, it can't mean anything to him. He, he's just living his life and doing what he's doing. He doesn't, it's not that he doesn't care. It's just that, you know, when somebody comes up to me and wants my autograph and tells me, you know, how much I mean to them, I appreciate that. But there's not really any way I can really feel what they're feeling. You know, I kind of understand it, but what can you say, you know? Um, and I felt that same way when I've met people that I admire, like for instance, Jeff Beck, who, you know, <laughs> is, uh, you know, I just, he, I, I mean, I grew up with his records, you know, spending my lawn mowing money, you know, walking six miles to the record store and then putting it on, wearing it out and playing to it, pretending I was Jeff Beck, you know, when I was a kid. And then ever since, you know, and I met the guy and I was just, I was just speechless, you know, and, and I was kicking myself because I could, couldn't think of what to ask him um, until afterwards. You know? <laughs> but the couple of times that I'd met him, I, he was very, very sweet. And, but I could tell it was just a little bit painful and uncomfortable because I didn't want to be that guy, you know, oh, you mean so much to me and what amps were you using on this record and, and this performance? And there's really nothing to say. It's just you love them, you appreciate them, and that's it. And you acknowledge them. That's all you can do. Yeah, yeah. Hey, how's this whole thing been for you? Do, the first time I saw you do this docking guest spot thing was in Florida last week. How has the whole experience of coming out at the end with Don been for you? It seems like you guys are in a good place and enjoying each other's company. Has it been fun for you? Do you enjoy doing it? It has been, actually, more than I would have thought. I, I would have thought that, you know, because Don and I had animosity you know, towards each other and couple of different levels over the decades and and you know and it's, it's a kind of a weird thing when you think about it and sometimes it is uncomfortable for me because i you know when i show up you know i have to sit there and of course they're playing the songs that i wrote and you know guitar player john is a wonderful guy we're friends but you know they're playing they're doing all my my whole thing <laughs> and then i walk out but i you know i think it comes down to look we're entertainers you know and if I'm going to spend my time crying about anything, then I'm just going to hurt myself and the fans. And that doesn't do anybody any good. And so, I, you know, I try to keep positive about the whole experience. And it has been actually good for everybody. The fans love it. I love doing it because, you know, the easiest thing I can do is play songs, you know, play docking songs. <laughs> songs that, are, you know, I helped writing 35, 40 years ago that I can play in my sleep with one arm tied behind my back and go out and enjoy it, you know, and not have to work that hard. Um, and just really enjoy what I'm doing, enjoy the moment. And it's the path of least resistance. You know, a lot of these other projects I do, I mean, they're not as easy of a sell, you know, when I'm doing a KXM project or uh, whatever it is, you know, I sometimes have to work at it a little bit. Well, do have to work at it a bit harder, you know, kind of think what is this supposed to be how am i supposed to write how am i supposed to look how am i supposed to sell this um with doc and i don't have any of those issues or concerns because all the work's been done we've already established what we are and i know what to do so it's really like i said the path of least resistance uh, sometimes is the right one 
What? Why? Why do you only? Uh, why do this versus the full blown set? Like you said, John does the full, the bulk of it, and then you come out and do the end. What, what is it? A money thing? Is it better that you guys stay, you know, a little further apart and don't do the whole set together because of past history? Like, no. why not just go out and play guitar for the whole show since it's your material anyway? Uh, well, that's probably an economic issue. Uh, on Don's side, I mean, Don owns the, the name and the band, and uh, you know, I it works for me on all levels at this point, and it obviously works for Don. So, uh, if it's not broken, why fix it? You know, and I, I don't know, I, I'm just be speculating that he's concerned maybe that you know something could pop up if he gets in bed with me, and then you know, he now he doesn't have what he's built over all these years, uh, so there's that, and uh, maybe uh. Uh, financially it would be not as uh, I don't know not as uh, of a positive outcome for him you know uh, I'm not sure we haven't talked about it but uh, what what we're doing now works uh, obviously what you just brought up is something that everybody's thinking about but you know hey you know it's not up for me to decide but I certainly would I feel like that would probably make sense you know I could see that making sense I'm already there why not just go out and finish playing the rest of the songs that I'm, that I'm, that, you know, they're part of my legacy, you know? So I think people would like that, but, uh, there's, uh, you know, a lot of different ways to think about that. So there's, you know, what we do as a business and I'm not ashamed of that. I don't think it's a bad thing to talk about the business side of music. Uh, it doesn't take away from the art. It doesn't take away from the creative part of it. Those are two different sides of the same coin. Um, we all have, need to make a living, but um, you have to have that balance of, the, you know, the, you know, appreciating and uh, producing this music that you love and that people like and enjoy. At the same time, it has to make sense financially. So I'm not sure which one that is, is why, why, you know, we're not back together, uh, uh, you know, on a more complete basis where I'm out there playing the whole set. But I've got a feeling it's probably financial. Well, yeah. And I mean, you're being honest. I talk about it all the time. It's called the music business and there's nothing wrong with that. Two two other quick things on Doc and then I want to talk to you about your solo record. Have you and Don worked on or talked about uh, potentially making, I know you did, a new, you guys all did a reunion song a few years ago or two. Have you talked about, or uh, since you are together a little bit now, even writing and working on anything new as far as new recordings? Uh, we have and, and the opportunity has come up every couple few years uh um and we had offers and they're they're good offers but um you know it's tricky at this point in all our careers when we're all out kind of established ourselves in other on, on other paths to bring us all together you know and even though um the offers are good it's not enough to make us all stop what we're doing in our tracks and reroute our careers to to do that so it's just every time it comes up it just it we always run into these obstacles um that are not anybody's fault in particular but it just seems like an impossibility i'm even running into that a little bit with kxm now um not to skip subjects but and, and we're on docking but i just wanted to make a, a parallel uh point that even with kxm um you've got ray lazier from corn and you've got doug Pennick you know, and all the records that he does, projects that he's got going, and of course, King Dex. And then my thing, you know, I'm kind of in all different areas too. So 
between the three of us, it's, you know, it was very, very hard for us to get almost impossibility for us to ever do that first record. I mean, I it was a miracle. We pulled that off. We literally had like eight days to do an album or something. It was crazy. And we didn't have any extra days. We had to come back a month later and write a couple more songs just on a weekend recording. Um, and then we managed to do two more records. So we did three records. Now we're looking at a fourth record, which I don't know if it's ever going to happen because, you know, corn is just, <laughs> you know, they, they work nonstop and they're huge. And, and I really, we can't really compete with that. And we're probably never going to tour as far as I can tell. And, um, Doug's doing a million things. I'm doing a million things. So if it's that difficult for even KXM to do a, a deal, which we, you know, we've got offers on the table, uh, you know, at any time we can, we can do a record. Um, imagine how much harder it is for, for, for docking. You know? um, yeah. I know, I know you've thing, wanted, I know you've wanted to do KXM live shows for a long time and I would love to see KXM live as a lot of people would be, I uh, would love to, but because it just sounds like it'd be so awesome to be heard live, but that's obviously been a challenge. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Ray, I know Corn has another record coming and everybody's in a million directions, but it would be great if you could even just get a run of three, five dates in at some point with that. Yeah. But the, the work to prepare for three to five dates is the same as to prepare for a year long tour. Right. And that's right. the problem. I mean, it's expensive to prep for a tour. You got to hire a crew and, and, and an agent and a manager and a, and a front of house guy. And you got to get, you, you've got to learn songs you haven't, that you wrote 10 years ago that you haven't played, you know, I mean, and they're not all just, you know, they're not easy compositions. Most of them, you know, they're sure. a little tricky. So, um, and I personally, if you put a gun to my head and told me to play a KXM song without me listening to, it, I wouldn't be able to, you'd have to shoot me. So, um, I had, I'd have some homework to do and to play it convincingly and to be a tight band. I mean, after, you know, you go see Corn, you know, which is incredible. You go see King's X, one of my favorite bands on the whole planet, everybody's favorite band. They're gonna, people are, expectations are going to be high. You know, you don't want to disappoint people yourself. So you want to be really prepared. And so to make that all happen, you need to do some meaningful touring. You need to do some warm updates and like smaller markets and get your feet wet and just get out there and become a band. And that takes a lot. It takes some weeks of rehearsal and then, um, and the other thing is KXM is really not a proven band. So how are we going to do out on the road? Where are we going to play? Are we going to play little clubs in the time of COVID? I don't think so. Are we going to get, are people going to put us in the Enormo Dome or stadiums? No. <laughs> so uh, I don't really, there's a lot of obstacles, unfortunately. I don't want to sound negative on your show, but that's just. No, you're being you know, honest. You're being realistic. Business. Yeah, you're being totally honest about it. I mean, and I appreciate that. And for those that don't know, KXM is George and Doug Pinnock and Ray Luzier, and there's three records, and they're killer records, and uh, maybe a forthcoming, and maybe hopefully one day uh, some 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 live shows. Um, hey, George, I want to talk to you about Seamless and a couple other quick things. But before I do, one final thing on Dokken. You mentioned that, you know, you, you, the comments you saw about yourself playing and, and when you saw the video I posted of you guys over the weekend, um, even in advance of you coming on here, you got to know that there are a lot of people that are critical of Don's performance and his voice these days. Now, I know that he's been through a lot in terms of health, but where do you land on that? And have you had conversations with him about that? Um. Well, you know, it gets brought up. I mean, you know, he's uh, hyper aware of who he is and what he does and what people think. And it, here's the bottom line 
as far as I'm concerned, from my perspective, the songs are really what people are there to see and the personalities to a lesser extent, uh, especially Don, of course, he's, he's the vocal guy. He's the lead, he's the lead singer. Um, but, you know, my experience is when I'm on stage with them, the songs are coming off fine. There's nobody with any, you know, it seems with any disapproval out there in the audience. I think everybody's enjoying themselves and, and into it. And that's why they keep coming back. I mean, how many decades has Don been out there performing and um, people keep coming back. So I think they're coming back for the songs, you know, and, um, and, you know, you know, when you're, you're, your late sixties and, and these guys getting into their seventies, uh, they're, you know, voices uh, are, are not like instruments, you know, they're not like guitars where you're, you know, it's a mechanical device, you know? Uh, so, um, voices go away, you know, but, um, you know, we work around it, you know, he sings in a lower register and, uh, um, uh, the bass player, uh, Chris is, does a great job of, you know, trying to hit the higher stuff so that, uh, it sounds like, you know, as much like the record as possible and it works yeah. and the band's killer. So, you know, I, I think, um, Hey, you know, you go see any older band, it's not what they were back in the day, but you know, we're doing the best we can. <laughs> Hey, and as long as as long as you keep it real, I'll take anything as long as it's real. I mean, I'd I'd have a much much bigger problem personally if he was lip syncing or something because to me that's right. inexcusable. So I'll take you know I'll take any uh, drop off as long as it's a real live performance versus fakery. No so tracks, there's that. No tracks and no man in the box. There's nobody hiding in a tent backstage. <laughs> we know bands have done that. You know, and, Robert Mason and, uh, isn't under the stage. <laughs> yeah, well. Under the, under the table, <laughs> under the stage, under the desk, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. George Lynch has been nice enough to give us some time here today on this Tuesday, talking music, talking guitar, talking rock, talking docking. And George also has his first ever all instrumental solo record, which came out recently called Seamless. Uh, George, you talk, we talked about just a little while ago, your, your love of Jeff Beck. Was that an inspiration to decide to, to do an all instrumental record like this? Uh, well, the, the main inspiration was the fact that I'd never done one. So, uh, I thought, well, you know what? I'm, I'm kind of a guy in the guitar world. I, I, that's something I can do. I, I probably should. I felt somewhat obligated, but also, um, I felt like I needed that challenge, you know, to, for, you know, to force myself to stretch a little bit and, and keep my chops up and, and give me a reason to, you know, cause you can, in uh, in being a guitar player, especially for you know, you play for decades and decades, you know, you get to the point where it's sort of like um, you get these plateaus where you where you get sort of used to your playing and you kind of do the same thing over and over again, and it's really hard to break out of those ruts. So uh, I think the best way to do that is just to do something completely different, you know, other than what your normal routine is. So you don't so don't warm up the same way, don't play the same way, you know, play through whatever just change anything you can think of and it forces your mind to kind of rewire and think in different ways and keeps your playing fresh and fun for you because if you're not enthusiastic about what you're doing that's going to come through your playing you know i I like to enjoy what i'm playing i like to get off on and go oh shit that was that was cool (laughs) rather than just being a technician you know and just like it's data or something you know so um when i got the offer from the label uh, which is rat pack records to to do that um uh, I had been working on a Lynch Mob record, and um, it just wasn't 
working out. Uh, I have, I was writing all these songs and for as long as I could remember, I'd never had this problem where I like, I, I, I kept sending the record and the songs to the, the rest of the band and they kept like kicking them back and like, dude, we don't know what to do with this. <laughs> and hmm. I'm like, what really? I go, yeah, you didn't, this is not Lynch Mob. We don't know what this is, but we, we don't know what to do with it. And, and I went through like four singers and a bunch of different people and it just after months and months of that i just like you know what i wrote the wrong record and i was ready to shit can it and just say wow i'm gonna have to just like put this stuff in the trash bin and start all over again and people came up and said you know what can you instrumentalize it and first of all first I, my first instinct was no i mean it, it wasn't built for that so I, an instrumental record would have to be built with that in mind from the ground up but then when i, I he goes well you know just just think about it and over the next couple few weeks, I, I started to tinker around with it because they suggested, you know, just play along with it and see if there's anything that you could do to maybe make that work. And when I started doing that, I, I actually realized that it would be not, not only could work, it wouldn't just be a salvage job, it'd actually be really interesting um, potentially. So I went to, went to work and rolled up my sleeves and just, you know, hit it from that angle. Like this is, I'm going to reinvent this wheel. And which was a challenge in itself. And um, um, I, I was actually really proud of the results. It's not the same thing as if I would have, uh, I'm thinking about doing another one later this year um, and uh, working, you know, just seeing what would happen if I just build a, an instrumental record from the ground up, you know, like surfing with the alien or something <laughs> or a Steve Vai record, just intentionally, this is built for, to be guitar music, you know, the guitar. Is right. Annoyed. Yeah, that's a, that's really interesting, and I was going to ask you about that because I'm always curious when and and I have Vi on the show on Thursday. I've had Satriani on. I've had all these guys that are known for making instrumental records, mm -hmm. and I was curious because as a writer, it is I would imagine it is a different approach when you sit down to write, and it's going to be an all instrumental record versus when you're trying to write with singer melody and law in mind and all of that. So that's interesting to me that this was originally intended to be with a full band and with vocals. So it was written that way, but you were able to adapt it. But if you were to do it again from the get-go, you'd probably take a different approach to the writing. I would. Uh, yeah. Because when you're writing for, for, or at least when I'm writing for vocals, the way I, you know, the routine that I have in my writing process and who I'm working with is there's a certain formula, you know, that you're accommodating uh, the vocals around. So it's, you know, kind of an A, B, ABC, ABC, bridge, AC out, you know, or whatever. You just, you know, a verse and a pre-chorus and choruses and they repeat and then you're in the middle of the song and you have maybe a bridge, a vocal bridge, maybe a solo, then a breakdown and a reintroduction and then uh, maybe a short verse and then skip the pre-chorus and a long chorus and, and end the song. That's the most kind of just stock, you know, arrangement I could think of off the top of my head. And that's basically what most of my songs are when I write them, I think, in those terms. Um so it's hard for me, or not hard, but it's a challenge for me to break that mold and think differently, um, which is what this record forced me to do, the seamless record. And if I were to write another one, which I intend to from the ground up, I mean, write another instrumental record and record it, uh, I would do even more of that, which, which I'm looking forward to because it forces me to think outside my own box. Mm. Well, um I wanted to ask you about the the re-recording. One of the last times I had you on was a few years ago, and at that point you were in the process of doing the re-record of Wicked Sensation. 
And I know that there was some blowback from fans about you having done that. Uh, I've always maintained I don't mind when an artist does that at all as long as the original version remains in print and remains an option to listen to. So what what's your take now in retrospect on doing that? How Do you stand behind it, or is it something you wish you didn't do? Uh, from my perspective, it was so much fun, and the results were awesome, and I – don't understand why anybody would have a problem with that. Uh, some of the criticism I saw was it was a money grab, which is the craziest thing because we got yeah. hardly anything to do it. We just did it just actually really to do it and because it was fun and we made, made a little bit, but I mean, for the amount of work we put into it, it wasn't, it was ended up being kind of McDonald's money. Really. If you add up all the hours, the amount of money we all ended up getting, it was really nothing, but it, it was, we worked really hard on it. It was a lot of fun. Brian Titchy ended up really, I, I would say, I don't know if I really credit him with this, but he was really uh, the producer and uh, in a huge way. I mean, he was there every bit of the way, went with my guitar parts, offering me uh, direction and ideas and uh, sort of a different perspective, you know, objective opinions about how to approach different sounds and performances and where I should play things. It was really phenomenal. I've never experienced that before with anybody. Usually producers are just kind of there in the room. I'm not sure why. <laughs> and he was intimately involved in all the bass parts, obviously drumming and, and other things. So he was phenomenal. And so I guess what I'm saying is if you don't like the record, you need to blame it on Brian Titch. Because it's not <laughs> I was against all that. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, he was phenomenal. Uh, oh man. I just, uh, uh, everybody just, played their asses off and i think we did a good job of reinterpreting a lot of the songs some of them were just too much the same as the original i thought and, and i don't know why that happened it's just sometimes you know uh lightning strikes and sometimes it doesn't but i think on about half the songs we we reinterpreted them in a really exciting you know energetic way and and uh i'm gonna try to pat myself on the back here but i was really shocked when i started getting kind of negative feedback not from everybody, but from some people, like you just mentioned, I was just like, well, that's where that's coming from. Um, I don't quite understand it because it doesn't take anything away from the original. It's not trying to replace right. anything. It's just in addition to, if you like it, you know, it's like, Hey, if you don't like it, don't buy it. <laughs> don't show right. Up. But I don't right. understand yeah. why people feel compelled to, to be openly vicious about with their criticism about something. I mean, we're talking about music here, which is just, it's very subjective, you know, it's, but if you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't. I mean, we're not hurting anybody here. Right. I mean, if you would have said the original Wicked Sensation is no longer available, never to be heard again, and this is the only new version, then yeah. But when you you have the option, it's just a different take on it. I, I find that stuff really interesting and and uh, and, and fascinating. Yeah, I'll give you, I'll give and you I like... a little nuts and, nuts and bolts business perspective of this. I mean, I should be, be talking about this, but... The first record was a five hundred thousand dollar record in nineteen eighty nine money, which is a million dollars now, or whatever it is. This record that people are complaining about was a twenty five thousand dollar record. The whole budget was twenty five thousand dollars. That was for the studio, the recording, uh, the mixing, you know, whatever expenses we had. I mean, that's so. That's I kind of look at it like that, you know. Right. It's like one twentieth of the budget. With one twentieth of budget, we created that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I'm the, sure that. Uh, you 
I'm sure the half a million on the original recording didn't all go to recording. It was the early nineties after all, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> uh, no, it, well, recording in quotes, I would say, because right. what in those days, what would happen is all the people around you, the machine that you're forced to build of the producers, the engineers, the studios, I wouldn't say the engineers so much, but the studios definitely. And the producers would, they're like divorce layers. They know how much money you have in the bank because it's their job to interface between the label and the band and the talent. So the first thing they look at is what's the budget? Oh, and then the second thing they think is how am I going to get the lion's share of that in my pocket? Right. And so, um, and studios are the same way. A lot of times producer will work in specific studios. They get kickbacks or they'll own the studios. Like in Keith Olsen's, uh, as an example, he owns, he owned the studio, so he insists on using his studio, which he charged an arm and a leg for. We could have went right across the street to Sound City, which is a much, much better studio for a tenth of the price. But we went to, you know, Goodnight LA, his studio, because that's how we got him as a producer. So um, what these guys do is they would just say, okay, well, the last person in line here, we're going to make sure there's no money left for the band when this is all said and done. So we spent a lot of money, but unnecessarily and not on not on frivolous things you know but just on uh, you know production costs that were really unnecessary in hindsight uh, because we can do records now for, that are well you know I would say arguably uh, in the same ballpark for one tenth or one twentieth of the money right, uh, because right. We work very, also because we work much more efficiently now because we ha- we're forced to so uh, back then, you know, we'd wander into the studio and maybe I'd, I'd spend three days getting a guitar sound. Dude, nowadays on a record, if I have three days, I'll have all the guitars done in three days. You know, right? I'll get a right. guitar sound in fifteen minutes. You know, um, and all that waste of time in the in, in the battle days or good old days was really kind of unnecessary and frivolous. Yeah, but, you know, we never thought it would end. So, so just in rap, just in. Just in wrapping up here, George, what's the future for you? You're going to continue to do some of these guest spots with Dawkin, and then I know you retired the name Lynch Mob, and now you just basically go out and play under your own name, and then the band is kind of who who's playing with you when you're doing your own thing is pretty much revolving. I mean, it always was pretty much, but you you will you don't have a really set band anymore, right? Uh, well, it, I really haven't since day one of Lynch Mob. There's it's been a revolving door uh, of, of, you know, members. Um, there's been so many versions of Lynch Mob. I can keep track. Um, so, yeah, but the, the, the interesting thing is though, uh, um, it's really a lot of times just the same people keep rotating through just at different times. So at this point, I've got Jimmy DeAnd on drums, which we've been playing together off and on for decades. Um, we've got our own stories there that go back, you know, way, way back. Then, uh, uh, Andrew Freeman is on is back on vocals and I've worked and played with Andrew all kind you know a lot for the last twenty years or so. And Rob DeLuca is on bass and he used to play with us in, in uh, earlier versions of the band and we've done other things together. Rob DeLuca is the bass player from uh, UFO. Sebastian Bach, yeah, he's a phenomenal band. I mean, Deanda Andrew's an incredible singer. Jimmy's a great drummer. Rob's a great bass. I mean, that's a great band right there. So that's your current lineup. Yeah, and it's George Lynch and the Electric Freedom. Uh, we've, uh, you know, 
and how long this lineup will last is anybody's guess. And I, I'm, I'm not investing myself anymore in saying myself are disappointment because, you know, change is inevitable. It's just part of life. If you resist it, you're just setting yourself up for disappointment and frustration. So I sort of actually uh, look forward to the changes because it's a different experience. So, you know, as, as opposed to Dawkins, let's say, which is very consistent and conservative, they go out, they play the same thing all the time. I'm not saying that in a bad way. I'm saying, but it's a different thing. So um, it's very consistent. They go out, they play the same set every year, every show, um, you know, I'm sort of the opposite. <laughs> I'll never play the same thing twice. All my souls are just off the cuff, you know, that night, um, how I'm feeling. And members are changing, which changes the whole makeup of the band and the flavor and the sound and chemistry. And I think that's something interesting. I would think from an audience perspective, you know, at least some people in the audience would say, you know, I'm going to show up and watch to see George tonight. And we don't know what's going to happen because this is a different band and they're going to play different songs, and he's going to play different solos. And our, our performances are like snowflakes, you know. They're all, no two are the same. So yeah. I'm not saying we're snowflakes. I'm just saying the performance. <laughs> <laughs> and the last thing, and I, I thought of you when I heard this news, and I, I was just like, oh, my God, George. Because, first of all, you're for those that don't know, your, uh, I guess, son-in-law is Richie Faulkner, the guitarist in Judas Priest. He's He's... Um, he he is doing okay. I mean, seems to have bounced back from this incredibly horrific, scary thing, uh, and getting ready to go out and play. So uh, the reports on him have all been positive, right? He's on the road to recovery. You've been in touch with him. Oh, of course. I mean, every day, you know. I mean, that's that's my little grandbaby, and I I'm facetiming him every day and talking to my daughter and talking to Rizzy, and. Thank God he's, yeah, I mean, he dodged the biggest bullet anybody could, uh, you know, be staring down the barrel at. I mean, and he's over the hump. As far as I can tell, he's he's doing pretty well. I mean, he's he's there, you know. I mean, I mean that's such an insanely traumatic thing for oh. any human being to go through that, you know, for him to be here four months later and pretty much back, you know, back uh, – you know, I don't know. I can't put a percentage on it, but he's, they just seems like he, he always was now, you know, um, you know, uh, he's such a, an incredibly scarily talented guy <laughs> and he makes it seem so easy. And he's also very driven and very dedicated and very smart. I mean, the guy is really a contender and I, and that's, and, and, and I love him for that. And, you know, I also love him because he, you know, he takes care of my daughter and my grandbaby and gave me a beautiful grandbaby, but um, he is just a really beautiful artist. And, and, um, and, you know, it's funny when we get together because, you know, guitar players are inherently competitive, even on a very friendly basis. When, you know, John and uh, Levin and I are out playing doing dock and stuff. I mean, there's definitely competition there, you know, and, uh, and we're all like that, you know, but it's friendly competition. I mean, I don't, you know, we use it as a, as, as a catalyst, you know, to, to be better, you know? Right. And, uh, but with Richie, I mean, I said, I watch him play and I'm just in awe, you know, and I'm, you know, I have a name and I'm a known guy in the guitar world, but I told him, you know, you are, you have entered the, your, your legacy has entered the pantheon of, of, of the upper echelons of guitar players. And that's, and he deserves that. He's, he's scary. I've, I've talked to a number of pro guys that have been on tour with him. And, and have confided in me that, that 
they just, you know, he just, he puts them to bed. <laughs> I won't want to mention names, but, you know, guys that, other guys that scare me have said that about Richie. He's, he's definitely a, a contender. He's, he's a monster. But no one would argue great, great person, great player. I know him uh, phenomenal, but, but the world was thrown off its axis when the mind blowing announcement of Judas priest playing as a single guitar band came out. And they of course changed on that because of the blowback, but you were on with me and we were, you were saying how he like, I want that gig in Priest. I want the set. When they announced they, for a half a second they were going to be a four-piece, I'm like, George, you got the in. That's got to be George Lynch over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because, you know, we talk about it frequently and it's been, a, you know, it's been brought up. But the, I guess they, they do have a, they do kind of have, um, you know, parameters they have to work with him. And Rob is really, you know, obviously the, the leader of the band. I mean, he's the, what his what he says goes and understandably and i guess the, they have this thing about they really want to preserve priest as being british you know because that's their legacy and that's kind of you know british steel that's what they're all about at least the front line i understand drummer's not but um and i get that so um just put a british accent on george you can go do it well you that's what i told him that. i actually I, I told i told <laughs> richie the other and mariah the other day i said hey i got my I got my 23 knee back and actually I'm 20, I'm 37% British. I had no idea. <laughs> Blimey mate. I just got my 23 and maybe I had to, I, I can adopt the accent. It's pretty good. Right. Hello? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'll learn some British words. <laughs> oh God. Have fish and chips yeah, every day and see where it takes yeah, you, man. Yeah, yeah. No, you know. <laughs> so well, listen, uh, I just want to mention before you hang up. Uh, yeah, I've never sang on a record before where like sang lead, and I I I think of myself as you know this in my own head as a singer, but when I open my mouth, it doesn't happen. You know, I just yeah. get, my throat gets in the way. Um, but on this seamless record, I did all the all the vocals. <laughs> you know, you I was thinking. Credits, you, you know, George, I was thinking that um, you finally made a solo instrumental record because you got so tired of dealing with singers and gone through so many. Now you just have to deal with that anymore. I love singers. Are you kidding me? I'm, <laughs> I'm just trying to be a singer, but I can't sing. So I play guitar. I love singers, <laughs> but no, that isn't really the reason why, but, um, but someday I, I, I will sing, but I did. There is actually a moment on that record where you can hear my voice where I did sing because of what I was doing was trying to convey something to the engineer and I was singing it, but he had a mic on the desk and he captured that. And I went on to do it with the guitar, but he put that back in the record and it's my voice on the record. And he didn't tell me about that. So it's kind of this. Like, and, I, and I'm looking at the credits right now. Cause I have the CD guitars and all vocals by George Lynch. I just picked up yeah. on that. That's fantastic. All vocals, which is one word that he repeated <laughs> over and over. This one song is tucked way, way in the back, but it's pretty funny. I can't remember the name of the song. So, hey man, anyway. it's always great to. I did all the. Technically, I'm not lying when I said I did all the vocals on the. That's on my true. There you go, man. It's I always great to talk a to you. Grammy for best. I might be nominated for a Grammy for best vocal on instrumental <laughs> record. I gotta go, man. It's great to talk to you. Thank you for the time. Hopefully, we'll talk again soon. Hopefully, I get a chance to see you soon. And everybody, check out Seamless out now and look for George out there on the road, either with Dawkin or doing his own thing. Um, take care, man. Thanks again for the time. I appreciate it. 
All right, Eddie. Talk to you soon. See you out there. See you. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks to George for joining me, and thanks to Jeff Tate as well. Again, those interviews were live on the radio on Trunk Nation on volume, Sirius XM Channel 106. Please join me there daily, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time, for Rock Talk in the U.S. or Canada. Thank you to Joel Pollack for producing the podcast. Please be sure to follow me on social media at Eddie Trunk, Twitter, Instagram, fan page on Facebook. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. We will be back again next Thursday for another all-new episode. Uh, Next week, I'll bring you interviews with Robin Zander of Cheap Trick and Richie Kotzen. Be sure to get ready for that this coming Thursday. Hope you catch me on the radio each and every day on volume. Guys, have yourselves a great week. Thank you for checking out the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Appreciate it. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Cheers to a great day and this ice-cold Corona. You know what would make this day even better? My grandma's carne asada. Throw in some music. We can watch the game. Or we could keep it simple. Corona, la vida más fina. Get your Corona at ordercorona.com. Relax responsibly. Corona extra beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois.